0: The theme of this final lecture is, appropriately enough, the end. That is to say, the end of the world, the end of society, the end of humanity. All of these themes which have historically been associated with the concept of apocalypse. So Girard, particularly in his later work, was an apocalyptic thinker. And this meant that he took the vision of apocalypse that is particularly central to the the New Testament, the Gospels, and the rest of the Christian scriptures, literally. In other words, he took the strange premonitions of the end of the world that these texts offered to mean something quite literal and historical. He, he took them to be truthful in what they said about the implication of the message of Christ. And this can be explained relatively simply in terms that we've already discussed. As we've seen throughout the course, myths and other documents of pre-Christian pagan, if we want to call them that, societies, repeatedly pose a cyclical narrative of destruction and regeneration. This is a familiar concept, right, that mythical societies are organized in a, around a sense of cyclical time, and that what happens with Jewish and Christian religion is the replacement of a cyclical with a linear temporality. So this is not unique to Girard. Um, It's a relatively straightforward and common idea that our, our notion of historical time comes from the Jewish and Christian Bible, which posits a linear progression rather than a cyclical process of destruction and renewal. That said, going back to the book of Genesis, we actually do have some trace of this, right? Because, of course, we have God's creation of the world, and then we have its destruction in the flood, and then its regeneration subsequent to the flood. So, according to Girard, the omnipresence of, of topics like the flood and other catastrophes in um, ancient myths and the the mythologies and and legends of many societies reflects the the actual reality that these societies pass through processes of crisis, near self-destruction, and regeneration. And as we know, this process looks similar everywhere. It involves the spread of a mimetic contagion of violence, which is an uncontrolled reciprocal uh, conflict that spills out across the entire society through mimesis. And that the society reaches this crisis point at which it faces its own imminent dissolution, and that precisely at that point the appearance of the scapegoat Enables the society to discharge this violence and, thereby, reconsolidate itself. So, again, the themes of of flood, of plague, and of other catastrophes that threaten the complete destruction of a society, for Girard, there's no there's no clear separability in these um, in these. Uh, Types of narratives between na- nature and society. In other words, a natural crisis is always a social crisis. So these apocalyptic moments, as they're represented in myth, of course, they may involve actual plague. Right? We saw this example with the um, with the uh, legend from. Guillaume de Machaut, right, that Girard discusses in The Scapegoat, right? We know that there was, in fact, uh, a Black Death, a, a, a plague that decimated much of medieval Europe and that recurred, in fact, several times, right, and loomed over society as a constant threat. And we also know that during these periods, um, the, the persecution of, of particularly Jews as scapegoats was quite common, Right. And so there was both a real biological contagion, but also a social crisis partly occasioned or exacerbated by it that spilled out into this, um, this type of, of uh, sacrificial violence directed at this designated scapegoat group. And so this mixing of social and uh, political and... Biological crises, Girard would argue, is typical um, throughout history, and the way the myths um, never clearly distinguish between these things is a register of that fact. Right. So, in Thebes, in the legend of Oedipus, of course, there is a plague, but that plague is a kind of punishment for Oedipus's uh, transgressions, or so it is represented in the in the um, legend. And so, in other words, it has a kind of moral basis, right? There, there's no separation between the mere accidents of nature and the um, the moral culpability that is ultimately assigned to some uh, scapegoat in order to supposedly relieve this crisis. And the point being that this, this set of apocalyptic themes where the... Um, you know, images of flood and plague seem to point to purely natural or biological interventions. Um, are, and and the, the myths reveal this, right, are, are never quite that simple, right? There's a, there's a constant mixing and undifferentiation between the natural and the social. So, again, um, through this process, which is endlessly retold through myths, we have a certain version of apocalypse that is, that is nevertheless able to be contained through the scapegoat mechanism. So what is uniquely apocalyptic about the Christian revelation is that it is based on the disabling of this mechanism through its exposure. So in other words, as soon as Christianity, um, or, or as soon as Christ essentially discloses to the world the nature of this mechanism the capacity for it to function through this misapprehension right this process by which um the scapegoat is truly seen as the agent of the plague or the crisis and therefore can take on the full responsibility for it and therefore can function as an agent of its its discharge to the outside of the society, that this mechanism is disabled because this misrecognition of the scapegoat is no longer possible. The scapegoat, as as is already revealed in Gerard, argues various Jewish scriptures, including the Book of Job, um, where essentially he argues we are we are told the entire story from the perspective of the scapegoat rather than from the perspective of the society that has renewed itself through the scapegoat's destruction. That the Christian revelation, Girard argues, is in a sense uh, an intellectual revolution, right? Because it demystifies this process, right? And yet it, by demystifying this process, Disables the basic mechanism that society could use to essentially renew itself cyclically in the in the process I've just been discussing, and therefore that apocalypse, which which previously in these other mythical contexts could be could be cyclically recontained, right, and um, th- that essentially there was a mechanism that that allowed for the apocalypse not to become generalized and universal, which is the scapegoat mechanism, that this no longer functions, it is no longer operative. And therefore, we face the end, the end of the the possibility of cyclical renewal and the potential for the uncontrolled spread of violence without any effective means of containing it. So... It is important to see that Girard, in his later work, particularly post-911, sees various of the uh, crises afflicting modern society in precisely this light. And he sees also a globalized world, right, as one in which this, this potentiality has become real in a way that it had never been before, because... Um, mimetic contagion can spread across the entire world literally not simply the entire social and cultural universe of a particular society but literally the entire globe right and terrorism which as he points out it's unsurprising often uh has occurred historically through um these means of global transportation like airplanes right Literally through the network of globalization, it is the carrier of terror of terrorism, um, which in exactly the same way is also the carrier. We might add of pandemic of global pandemics like COVID nineteen. That this sort of contagion, right, that threatens to undermine a society by creating an uncontrolled spread of reciprocal violence, is now without any means to bring it back under control. And so this is why, for Girard, the 21st century panorama that he was contemplating in his final years before his death in 2015 is a literal um, realization of the apocalypse um, predicted in the Bible, right, that... The, the predictions of the Bible, which might be seen as bizarre irrational, he would argue are in fact real and historical, right? Because they are based on the anticipation of what happens when you remove humanity's unique means of contending with and um, bringing under control its own violence. So this basic insight is, is central to his final work, Battling to the End, which perhaps surprisingly touches on various uh, themes and issues that are not really covered extensively in his prior work, but that, as it turns out, are quite um, germane to this entire topic of apocalypse. So... His final book, "Battling to the End," again, I bring up this this concept of the end. Although the French title, I should add, is "achever Clausewitz," in other words, completing Clausewitz, um, is a, a meditation on a text that, interestingly, comes from the same period as Girard's first work dealt with, which was Deceit, Desire in the Novel, you'll recall, which was focused on early to mid-19th century European novels, which interestingly were specifically written in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars. And here we might think particularly of Stendhal, um, the French writer, who is one of the central figures in Deceit, Desire in the Novel, and whose great novel, uh, The Red and the Black, Le Rouge et le Noir, is um, premised on a, a, a sort of um, type of figure that, that, that really existed in this time, which is a, a sort of ambitious, striving young man who arrives from the provinces of France to the city. And his idol is Napoleon. So why Napoleon? Well, essentially because Napoleon was, was himself a provincial um, from the island of Corsica who managed to work his way up to the position of emperor right who who came to rule over um, vast swathe of Europe through his great um, conquests so in other words um, this is a period in which traditional hierarchies that uh, regulated what, Particular subjects could aspire to in their lives came into crisis um, because of a new egalitarianism. And in many ways, Napoleon, although of course he reinstated a kind of hierarchy by making himself emperor, was, was a symbol of this aspiration, right? Of, of egalitarian striving, right? That, that a young man from the provinces could make his way all the way to the top. So this is essentially the, the premise of the red and the black, right? And so Napoleon is an interesting figure here because he's a kind of agent of mimetic crisis because he, he becomes a mediator who inspires young men from all across Europe to join his armies and essentially use them as a vehicle for social mobility, Right. And also to um, essentially carry out, in a way, the egalitarian, horizontalizing vision of the French Revolution, in which society could be made more equal, right? And these, these um, traditional hierarchies, right, which were the, the precondition of this situation of external mediation, right, where um, the possibility of conflict and rivalry was limited by the clear definition of everyone's station in society. The dissolution of those hierarchies is essentially brought about in part by Napoleon's conquests, right? Because he goes around um, introducing the Napoleonic Code, which essentially um, universalizes certain ideals of the French Revolution around equality. So again, Napoleon is a crucial figure here, and he is a rad- an agent of this radical transformation of European society in, a, in an egalitarian direction. But because of this egalitarianism, um, basically the, um, the hierarchies that previously controlled the potential of, of mimetic crisis um, were uh, weakened, right? And so... A certain kind of apocalyptic possibility was was laid bare, right? Returning to this idea that without these kinds of stru- or when these structures dissolve, the potential of uncontrolled mimetic crisis comes into view. And so again, this is essentially Girard's, um, and and he brings up this theme of apocalypse already in Deceit, Desire in the novel, particularly in relation to uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky's novels where he, um, again, writing in the wake of these Napoleonic Wars, which made it all the way to Russia, where he sees the potentiality of this modern leveling, right, of traditional hierarchies, values, and standards as fundamentally apocalyptic. And so there is a chapter, which if you're interested, you could check out, in the Deceit Desire in the novel called the Dostoevskyan Apocalypse. And so, interestingly, battling to the end, although it also covers quite a bit of new ground, does kind of come full circle back to this 19th century moment, where with the leveling of the traditional hierarchies of, of medieval Christian Europe, we might say, um, this apocalyptic potentiality of unrestrained mimetic contagion comes into view. However, He approaches it here through a different sort of text, not a novel, but a famous treatise on war by the Prussian military officer Karl von Clausewitz. So Clausewitz is also extremely um, deeply shaped by the experience of the Napoleonic Wars, right, in which he uh, fought in the Prussian army against Napoleon, um, but... You know, eventually there was a surrender. Um, he spent some time in exile in Russia. Um, but so for him, Napoleon, again, was the kind of mediator and rival, right? Napoleon was both um, the object of his obsession and also his his enemy, right? And so the important thing here is that Clausewitz, like some of the 19th century novelists, sees in this new world that was brought into view by the Napoleonic Wars the potentiality for this uncontrolled mimetic conflict. And with this potentiality, from Clausewitz's perspective, comes a new set of possibilities surrounding the subject of his interest, which is war, right? And this is the concept that he calls the escalation to extremes. So in other words, there's an idea that... um, in more traditional forms of war warfare, there's a kind of um, in, intrinsic limitation to it, because war in many societies is ritualized, right? And there are, there are sort of um, ways that it um, is, is cordoned off from the rest of society so that it does not um, consume all of society, at least in, in normal times. And so th- there's a kind of limitation to war. And what Clausewitz sees in um, the Napoleonic Wars is, is an escalation of war to a, to a level never before seen. And this would involve in particular the mobilization of the entire population. And here we might think of particularly um, the fact that the wars fought by France in rev- in the revolutionary era and the Napoleonic era were driven by a large volunteer army, right of of, of French people who or French men who, um, essentially, fought in the name of a kind of nationalistic um, spirit and also in the name of a. Um, potentially a kind of ideological allegiance, right, to certain abstract ideals. And so if you go back to earlier periods of warfare, right, they're largely fought by a mix of essentially a kind of professional warrior class combined with paid mercenaries, right? And this this is kind of the standard of warfare, right? War is fought by a particular class of people whose role it is to um, to fight, right? We might think of knights in medieval times. And then beyond that, there are certain kind of, um, you know, lumpen elements of society that can be um, hired on as, as mercenaries, right? And so um, what you see instead with modern warfare beginning in the Napoleonic era is the mobilization of entire populations, and in in the name of in the name of warfare, right? So here we have the potential of a war to consume and take up the entire the entirety of a society, which of course becomes um, you know a, a completely obvious and visible element of the early twentieth century wars, especially the First World War, right where you have entire populations mobilized around this kind of nationalistic fervor, right? And so part of the point here is simply that Clausewitz glimpses this potentiality already before it has fully come into its own with the wars of the 20th century. But according to Girard, he also glimpses other things, including the, um, the prevalence of, of unconventional warfare, which he first sees in the partisan wars against Napoleon, right, where you basically had Napoleon invading various countries, Spain, Germany, and so on. And you had these kind of partisan guerrilla. This is, in fact, where the whole idea of the guerrilla, the guerrilla, the um, first emerges in the context of Spain, right, where you have these, these ragtag bands of sort of partisans, um, fighting against Napoleon, right? And these are these are totally disorganized efforts by just average people who, you know, in response to the total mobilization of France through Napoleon's um, con- efforts at conquest, um, themselves mobilize, right? That that average citizens mobilize um, to fight against this this vast volunteer army invading army, and so. Girard argues here, in response to the nation-state's mobilization, you first have, and Clausewitz and sees this, he argues, you have this kind of um, counter-mobilization of unconventional warfare in, in the context of the partisan, or the guerrilla, the guerrilla, which later um, becomes essentially the basis of terrorism, Right. So if you just compare in the 19th century, the early 19th century, you have the Napoleonic armies invading under the banner of France, and then you have these kind of ragtag bands of partisans trying to fight them. And then in the 20th century, you have basically a repeat of this, right? You have the, um, the, the U.S. Army um, or the U.S. military, you know, exerting massive um, imperial power worldwide, and then you have these kind of ragtag bands of terrorists um, so-called fighting against them. Right? So, so this basic pattern right, of mobilization and counter-mobilization is, is already in play, and Klausowicz observes it. And Girard's main addition here is simply to observe that this is a, a mimetic process right, of the sort that all of his work <clears throat> describes. And Basically that, again, once you have this process of dissolution of of hierarchies and of of sort of sacrificial and quasi-sacrificial regimes, there is a potential for this kind of escalation of violence, right? Where there is no limit to its potential for escalation. And so... It's worth, it's worth adding here that part of the background to this is, is the idea that if you look at how warfare functions in many societies, pre-modern societies, it has this kind of ritualized function and is also connected to sacrifice, right? So, in fact, if you look at um, Mesoamerican, in other words, Aztec and related societies, the there was a kind of... Um, inseparability of war and sacrifice, right, because war was carried out in part to capture sacrificial victims. Um, But also, war um, was kind of built into uh, a ritualized regime by which, you know, particular sorts of violence were were channeled um, and and exercised. And you, you can see this in many other societies, right? There are various... Cultures uh, globally, where you you had basically kind of seasons of warfare, where um, you know the warrior class of the society would engage in um, periodic battle with the warrior class of a, a rival society, and this was essentially kind of ritualized and staged, right? And so, there's a way that warfare in this in these more traditional forms can function as a kind of um, Mode of sacrificial violence that discharges um, aggression or conflict out of the society, um, and and thereby prevents it from consuming that society. And the basic point here would be that through this escalation to extremes, the Clausewitz glimpses this no longer. This is another means of controlling violence that is no longer viable, right? And so this is uh, the central thread of, of battling to the end, which basically focuses on the transformation of warfare and, again, uses it to reflect on the significance of, of 9-11 as a repetition of this basic pattern of mobilization and counter-mobilization, right, and of, as Girard calls, mimetic rivalry on a global scale. Right, which again repeats this basic situation that was already brought into play through the Napoleonic Wars and the contest between the French citizen army and the partisan counter mobilizations in various societies that Napoleon invaded. So this is one central um, insight that Girard offers later in his career. Into this apocalyptic scenario that we face, right, which is that the transformation of warfare into this um, massive, globally scaled conflict, often between um, you know some sort of imperially dominant power and some kind of um, partisan opponent, is. Um, is sort of baked into the basic um, structure of the modern world as it was created in the early 19th century. And so this this points us towards apocalypse by showing that there's a way that warfare has ceased to serve this kind of ritualized function of of discharging violence and instead has become a mode in which this kind of totalized, mimetic, contagious violence might come to overtake society as a whole. So it's interesting to note here, just as an aside, that um, this apocalyptic turn in Girard's thought is in some ways a, a, a shift from some of his earlier writing, even though, as I mentioned, he does address this concept of apocalypse and deceit desire in the novel. Because if you look at violence on the sacred, one of the themes in that book is that in many ways the the invention of a modern judicial system has made the functioning of sacrifice in some way obsolete, right? That that, um, the judicial system offers a mode of conflict resolution that is essentially neutral, right? and that while it may continue to um, contain certain sacrificial elements, and here we might think, as Girard mentions, of the unanimity of the jury, right, as a kind of echo of the unanimity of the crowd against the scapegoat. Nevertheless, um, he he does seem to present the, the development of a judicial system um, and it's, it's kinds of um, neutralizing functions and checks and balances as a sort of anti um structure, right, that can keep violence in check in the absence of a functioning um, sacrificial system. So, I think this is a point that Girard, um, again, introduces in his earlier work and does touch on in some ways later, right? But nevertheless, um, there is a turn towards a much darker conception of modern politics and modern social structures um, in his later work, I would argue. So there is plenty more to be to be said on Girard's um, apoco- apocalyptic sensibility, and particularly his his thoughts about terrorism. So I hope we can address some of these in the discussion. But I wanted instead to um, move on to somewhat different territory and just discuss um, two other implications of mimetic theory that I think are particularly interesting and that are taken less from Girard's work itself than from certain extensions and applications of it. So the first would be a kind of understanding of economy in basically sacrificial terms. So the central text for this is the one that I assigned part of for this week which is a text called The Ambivalence of Scarcity, um, which is a kind of compilation of several texts by the um, philosopher Paul de Michel, who's, in my mind, one of the most interesting sort of um, Girardians, we might say, or, or um, interpreters of, of Girard's thought in modern times um, and particularly his early work which was in collaboration with Jean-Pierre Dupuis who is another one who I would say is um, particularly worth looking into if you're interested in how people are applying some of Girard's ideas to areas of the social sciences and particularly economics that, that Girard does not address at length in his own work. So um, Dupuy and Dumouchel were probably the first to do this in their book from 1978, called originally in French L'Enfer des Choses, which um, is essentially an attempt to think about Girard in economic terms. Now, I, I won't be able to um, address this set of ideas at as great a length as I'd like to, but i will try to instead encapsulate them briefly so again we have this notion that with the waning of the functionality of the scapegoat mechanism there is the emergence of a problem of how society can keep its own violence in check right because it has it has lost this this primary mechanism that it possessed for, for this purpose. And so Dupuy and Du Michel's great insight is to see that we can understand the functioning of economy in these terms. So this is a point that, that did come up to some extent in very early discussions of Girard's work, because Deceit Desire in the novel was actually well-received among various Marxist critics operating in, in France at the time, and particularly Lucien Goldman, who's a somewhat forgotten figure, who um, wrote about the basic economic implications of Girard's thought back in the 1960s. But the, the basic insight is that there's a connection between the functioning of sacrificial systems and the functioning of what anthropologists and anthropological economists have called the gift economy, right? And here, the the crucial work is Marcel Mauss' um, book, The Gift, Essay sur le don. So, the basic idea of this is that um, most societies have not functioned in the same way that modern economies do, in which there is an operation of equal exchange based on a universal currency, right? So when we want some particular good, we go and um, trade designated amount of currency equivalent for it, right? So most societies historically have not, in fact, possessed money. And this is why if you look at an economic textbook, there's usually this hypothetical notion that people bartered goods, um, you know, I'll give you a pound of rice if you give me, you know, five avocados or whatever. So the problem with this is that anthropology has... (laughs) roundly confirmed that no arrangement like this has ever existed, really, um, except in maybe moments of crisis. Um, This has never been the normal functioning of an economy. So how did societies that did not possess currency, or in which currency was a relatively rare element, function? Well, they functioned through the gift economy. So the gift economy would simply mean that um, if I you know, live in a community with a certain number of people. Um, I will be given certain objects or goods by certain people in that community who I have some deep connection with, right? I might be related by marriage to them. They might be my cousins, whatever. And the point is, I do not need to give them any, um, any immediate equivalent value for that object, because I am indebted to them in all sorts of deep ways that basically mean that I, um, at some point down the road, will give them some kind of equivalent, right? And the, the, um, the the most beautiful illustration of this comes in the beginning of the film, The Godfather, right? Where you may recall... A, an old um, associate of Vito Corleone shows up at his daughter's wedding and basically explains this terrible thing that's happened to him um, where his daughter has been raped and how he wants revenge on the, um, the, the men who did this. So the godfather then is highly offended because the man offers him money to carry out this act and says, you know, basically, it's it's shameful that you've come here on the day of my daughter's wedding and are asking me to do murder for money, right? So in other words, the, the person whose monologue begins The Godfather is represented as a highly assimilated American. This means that he's essentially operating economically like an American, right? So he thinks that if you want something like some goons to go murder the guys who raped your daughter then you have to pay for it right so the godfather when confronted with this logic is is disgusted by it right and basically he's disgusted by it because it is um, an offense to the deep connection of lifelong indebtedness that he and his um, his associates should have right so what does he do instead? Well, basically he says, "Yeah, we'll go and take care of these guys. We'll, we'll get rid of them. But at some point down the road, you know, you will owe me a favor, right? And that that is not necessarily a favor that that is that is, um, you know, is going to be equivalent in some monetary sense. It's simply that you you are going to carry on this relationship of indebtedness to me." And sometime down the road, you will carry out um, some action that will that will reflect that state of indebtedness. And then after that action is carried out, that relationship will not end, right? So this type of economic arrangement is the gift economy. And this may seem like a tangent, but I will explain its relevance now. So the point of... Um, the kind of economic exchange that we are accustomed to today is that it is the opposite of this. When I go into a store, I buy a product, I hand over some money, and there is no further relationship between me and the person who owns the store, right? That's it. Our relationship is limited to that single transaction. There's no deeper relationship of indebtedness, right? And so this is the um, type of economic exchange That creates a society of atomized people, right, who have no particular um, indebtedness um, in a moral sense to the majority of people around them, right? We live in an isolated way, and we live in an isolated way in part because our lives are defined by these kinds of exchanges, right? Now, that's not entirely true because we have some family um, and so on who are not, Quite that way, with but even with our friends, right? We go out for a meal with them, but we, you know, Venmo them the money so that um, they get their get so that we pay our share of the the bill, right? So there are very few people who we have these kinds of relationships of the sort that is illustrated in The Godfather of lifelong indebtedness. Okay, so that's what it means to live in a modern economy. Right is that our the vast majority of our interactions with other people are defined by these discrete economic exchanges that do not entail any deeper indebtedness. Right, and that means that our network of of relationships, of exchange, of of sort of sorry of indebtedness, has has shrunken to almost the minimum level. Right, the vast majority of people we are interacting with merely as Discrete partners of of equal economic exchange. So the gift has largely been taken out of the picture, right? Except for, again, a few close friends and usually just limited... And family, and and even there, just usually limited to sort of holiday gift giving or something like that, right? So what does this mean? Well, it's important to realize that this situation of indebtedness and this is clear in the case of the godfather right and if we think of mafia movies what happens well um if somebody kills my cousin right and we're in the same you know family together and that let's say it's not even my cousin let's just say it's somebody else who's in the family as in as in you know who are who's part of the same sort of larger social network of indebtedness it is my obligation to track down, to help track down those who killed him and kill them, right? So this means that the the flip side of the seemingly nice situation in which everybody is always indebted to each other for life is that it's a situation in which this kind of contagious violence is far more likely, right? Because it means I'm connected to all of these people who if something happens to them, I am obligated to respond, Right? And so this type of indebtedness, and again, the mafia movies are a perfect illustration of this, carries with it a far greater threat of violence, right? Because if my relationships are primarily to people I'm not indebted to, right? because they're simply people I'm occasionally exchanging money for goods or whatever in some discreet way, then I have no obligation to them, right? And certainly I have no obligation to kill someone or or avenge myself on someone who does something to them. So these societies, which constantly face this threat of, of mimetic contagion are precisely these societies defined by gift economy. Right. And this is a really crucial point that uh, Dupuy and Dumouchel make in their early work, which is that um, the, the flip side of this, um, this archaic situation in which the threat of of um, mimetic contagion of violence is omnipresent is is this situation of the gift economy, right of Of vast networks of of indebtedness, of moral obligation to others, right? And so this means that this um, this atomizing modern economy, Right, that turns us all into individual actors who exchange um, in discrete ways um, objects of equivalent value with others, but have no sustained relationship to them. That this type of economy functions as a check on the spread of violence, right? Because if we have no um, if we have no vast network of obligations, then we um, are far less likely to be caught up in these kinds of um, these kinds of mimetic contagion, right? Because we, um, if something happens to somebody who lives down the street, if we live in most modern cities, they're probably a stranger to us, doesn't involve us, right? Um, totally irrelevant, right? So it's it's inconceivable to imagine this in an archaic society, right, where you are linked in all sorts of complicated ways through the functioning of this gift economy. Okay. And so the point that du michel and Dupuis make is simply that the emergence of the modern economy, right? Basically in the uh, 15th, 16th century, the emergence of what we tend to call capitalism, right? Which is basically the, the dominance of, of market relations, right? Where, our relations with the majority of people are mediated through the market, right? The market is not simply a a discrete institution that characterizes a certain type of relationship, but rather it becomes almost the universal institution that mediates everything. That this can be seen as a kind of compensatory function that helps bring violence under control by... Precisely by atomizing us, right? By making us into these individual economic actors, right? And, you know, and Girard does discuss this, I believe, in his book of interviews, Evolution and Conversion. Think about this this basic economic act, right? Which is completely familiar to us, but almost inconceivable in the majority of societies that have ever existed, right? Which is that I go into a store, I take something off the shelf, and then I exchange money with the proprietor, right? That this this type of a relationship is one of the most common today, but it is um, irrelevant or, or marginal in the majority of societies, historically, right? Um, that this type of scenario is precisely a type of scenario in which um, violence is unlikely to emerge, right? Because... We, me, and the the shop owner have simply have no relationship beyond that, right? There's no possibility of this um, this reciprocity between us, spiraling out of control, right? We're simply um, carrying out this discrete exchange, right? And that that brings our relationship to an end, right? It doesn't it doesn't go beyond that. So there can be no escalation, there can be no escalation to extremes, no mimetic contagion between us, right? It's a a type of relationship that implicitly controls the possibility of any kind of violent conflict, right? Now, if you compare this to certain kinds of phenomena that are documented in anthropological literature, you might consider, for example, the potlatch, right, which is a, a famous and strange phenomenon, right, in which there's this kind of process of gift giving which involves an escalation to extremes, right? Where, where essentially, um, these, uh, these sort of rivals will, in order to, um, sort of outdo one another, will, um, give each other gifts to the extent of engaging in a vast destruction of their own wealth, right? And so this is, this shows that, um, this kind of process of social competition can, in in some cases, be the opposite of the, the function of economic competition as we understand it. Right? It, in not only is it not not only is the aim not to accumulate goods, it can literally involve taking valuable goods and setting them on fire or throwing them in the sea in order to um, prove your own superior magnanimity to someone else. Right, in order, basically, in order to elevate your social status, right. So, we could see this kind of basic economic exchange of the sort I've been discussing as the opposite of this, because again, it doesn't, it generally precludes this kind of possibility of escalation, right. And so, uh, Dumouchel's basic insight here is simply that economy functions as. A kind of, um, and he associates this with scarcity. And just a word on that, um, you know, Girard often points out that scarcity is not sufficient to generate conflict, as many modern economists would imagine, right? And you know, there's good anthropological literature to suggest this, because precisely in these societies that are governed by Dense networks of kinship relations, right, and of mutual indebtedness. Um, basically, when you ha- when when there's a certain scarcity that afflicts a society, that simply means that everyone gets a little bit less, right? The scarcity is is evenly distributed, and therefore um, there's a social mechanism that prevents it from becoming uh, becoming a huge source of crisis. And the point, the other point here would be that modern economies institute scarcity, right, by making the distribution of goods a matter of being able to offer an economic equivalent for them rather than a matter of being part of a dense network of kin who um, ensure that everybody they are indebted to gets at least enough to survive, right? And... But the other point and I'll I'll um, conclude my discussion of this notion of an economic check on violence with this point um, is that nevertheless, there is also a kind of um, a kind of structural scapegoating that occurs through this process right And that is simply that as we know the market economy always has its losers right It has the people who, are unable to function within it or are for various contingent or historical reasons excluded from it, right? And who therefore, somewhat like the scapegoat, are, are um, cast out to the, the margins of society, right? And who are seen according to the logic of modern market economies as in some way responsible for their own fate, but this is a a profane rather than a sacred process because these um these sort of uh these victims of the market economy do not do not become gods right they they're simply the kind of refuse or the 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 castoffs of this system right but nevertheless there is and you know we could use the term structural violence here right because in a in a simple way we could say that while um the the official structures of modern societies um distance themselves from the practice of scapegoating they nevertheless generate victims right through their basic structural operation right and those victims are generated by the functioning of this market process which produces scarcity by atomizing us um eliminating our ability to depend on these dense networks of kin and associates to whom we're obligated and, and indebted for life, and instead making us individualized market actors who must obtain equivalent value to exchange for any good that we want to obtain. So this is the, um, I, I find quite fascinating way that Dupuis and Dumouchel essentially think about modern economy as a, a sort of substitute for the sacred, right? That that the modern economic production of scarcity is a kind of um, ad hoc replacement of the functioning of the sacred. And if you're interested, I would say that this is a line of inquiry that is, to my mind, utterly fascinating, and still beyond these initial um, essays published by Dupuis and Michelle, essentially unexplored, right? So this is kind of a an area where Girardian thought, I think, opens out into uh, a quite fascinating and counterintuitive analysis of the modern world that I think deserves to be continued. And as a final point in this lecture, I'd like to discuss another possible way of thinking about um what what takes the place of the sacred what takes the place of the functioning of sacrifice to essentially um um contain or put a check on violence right and my thinking here would actually come from the work of peter thiel who has never you know written um all that extensively about his his relationship to uh, Girard, but he um, does have a couple of intriguing texts which are worth checking out. And you know, I, I do have my own writings kind of on this my the way I interpret this relationship. But basically, um, and we're here we're coming back to something that I've brought up before, which is this idea that. Girard essentially understands scapegoating as a technology, right? And I discussed this in my analysis of 2001, right, the opening scene. Or really, there is this this connection between the emergence of humans as technological beings and the um, discovery of the scapegoat mechanism as a means of conflict resolution, right? So Girard points to this in a few different ways, one is simply to suggest that um, it's the uh, that that the scapegoat mechanism is kind of humanity's original innovation, right? To um, in all sorts of ways, which I pointed to earlier, connect the functioning of archaic religion with the contemporary functioning of technology, right? He compares the priests who um, you know manage these kinds of sacrificial cults. To the technicians of modern-day nuclear power plants, and um, you know, uh, you know, biopharmaceutical labs, right? Who have to, similarly to the priests of ancient times, maintain these strict standards of ritual hygiene, right, and keep keep things separate, um, and so on, right? So, so there is this odd continuity, right, where. If if you look at the functioning of sacrificial cults, they actually look quite a lot like the functioning of the most sophisticated technological apparatuses today. And the reason I think Girard would would claim is is simply that their um, their functioning was was similarly sophisticated, right? That that they um, although they seem crude and primitive to us, right? They were um, a sort of regime for managing society and particularly managing society's violence that was as as complex and sophisticated as any uh, modern scientific operation might be, right? And so there is this interesting connection, right, between um the functioning of sacrificial regimes and the functioning of technological regimes that gerard points to at various um, points in his writing now i think teal takes this up in his book zero to one where he identifies this notion of a zero to one innovation right which is essentially an innovation that that takes us to that kind of levels up some sort of process right that that completely transforms um, the the conditions of possibility of some some system, right? And then he compares this to one to two innovation, which is essentially, you know, the the kind of innovation that builds on some sort of prior innovation, right? That is that is fundamentally imitative, right? And this can go back to that essay of Girard's on imitation on innova- innovation and repetition. So. The point here would be, and Teal has said this, that the scapegoat mechanism is the original zero to one innovation, and in that way, it is it is like these um, these great modern innovations, like splitting the atom, right, and generating the possibility of both nuclear power and um, nuclear weaponry. So, this would also mean then that um, technology is. One of the things that, again, once the sacrificial regime of ancient times seems to gradually wane, um, it is as if technological growth um, comes in right at that moment, right? So we might ask why that is. Well, Girard has a couple of intriguing comments on this point. One is that um, basically he, at some point, point notes that... um, you know what's remarkable about things like the Salem witch trials, which we're familiar with, is is not that they happened because they were, as we're familiar enough with his work to know, you know, very similar to things that have happened in all cultures and societies throughout history. Instead, what's remarkable is how quickly they were seen as disgraceful and disavowed, right? And so, another point that Gerard has made is that, um, you know, in this period when we can actually see. People beginning to discredit um, the basic premises on which these kinds of witch hunts were based is the same period in which we can see the the origins of scientific and technological research with you know figures like Francis Bacon um, in the sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth centuries. And so, basically, there there's a kind of process by which it, it would seem that the waning of this um, this uh, Kind of belief in in sca- the functionality of scapegoating, and in the guilt of the, the victims, corresponds with the growth of modern science. Now, the conventional way to see this, as Gerard notes, is to see it as a consequence that that because we start making these scientific discoveries, we begin to see why it's ridiculous to, you know, think that a witch can um, cause all of this misfortune, right? But Girard argues we should flip that around, right, and instead say that it's the discrediting of the scapegoat mechanism that basically, um, si- since we no longer see plague as something that has a, a moral agent behind it, right, has, a, has a, an um, exemplar of human evil who has caused it, right, and therefore we no longer... When we discredit the scapegoat mechanism, we, we no longer have to see plague as a, a fundamentally moral contagion, right? We can instead see it just as a, a sort of neutral biological fact. And because we've discredited this, um, this basic functionality, we um, can start looking for other kinds of explanations, right? Right. And here, I think Gerard is indebted to the anthropologist E. Evans-Pritchard, who I may have mentioned before, right? Who notes that if you if you study um, the um, functioning of witchcraft accusations in the African societies that he studied, what you see is that people understand very well that um, you know if my brother is in a granary and it collapses on him and he dies. Um, They they can understand very well that there's a basic physical causality uh, at work there, right? They don't have any trouble with that. And yet, nevertheless, they try to find a witch they can blame for it. Why? Well, Evans Pritchard argues because they don't separate physical causality from moral causality. Nothing simply happens, right? When when something happens to someone whom I'm indebted to or who's indebted to me, who's part of my kinship network— that's a, a kind of misfortune that requires a moral explanation, not simply a physical or, or factual one, right? And so this is why I need to find a witch, right, who I can blame for it. And so the point would be, once the scapegoat mechanism is that generates witches and witchcraft accusations is, is short-circuited and discredited, right, through the gradual um, playing out of this kind of um, Judeo-Christian revelation in Gerard's interpretation. Um, that means that I'm I'm sort of free to um, to demoralize all of these kinds of um, these kinds of processes, right? I no longer have to see plague as something that requires a moral agent behind it. In other words, a witch. Instead, I can simply see it as a a physical process, right? That I can understand on its own terms. And so we might also say, returning to the point about technology, that it is this um, this um, freeing up of the the possibility of investigating physical causes on their own terms that enables the rise of advanced technological research. Right? It enables a kind of um, you know leaps and bounds towards advanced technologies because my ability to both interpret and uh, manipulate the physical world is no longer constrained by the kinds of taboos um, and restrictions that were associated with sacrificial and ritual regimes, right? And also because my understanding of the physical world is something I can separate out from my understanding of the moral world, so this is, to introduce another thinker into the mix here, this is essentially what the anthropologist Bruno Latour calls the modern constitution, which is basically that um, in pre-modern societies, there is a belief in the, um, the inseparability of the moral and the physical realms, right? as we've discussed, and as Girard repeatedly comes back to, And that basically what what modern um, societies do is say uh, we are setting these things apart and we we understand the moral realm as a purely human and social phenomenon and we understand the physical realm as a purely non-human and non-social phenomenon, right? And this is what enables the great proliferation of technical research. Now, of course, the problem here, and Latour sees this as Girard does, is that the advancement of technological research brings about these kinds of uncanny fusions of the human and the social and the, the physical and the material that um, eventually kind of bring us back to where we started, right? And the, this is basically this notion of the Anthropocene could be understood in this way, right? The Anthropocene is the apocalypse, as I defined it earlier, because it is a situation in which the um, the basic capacity of the world to sustain human beings has been fundamentally affected by the moral actions of human beings, right? And so there's a weird loop here by which this separation, in the end, brings these two things back together, right? And so we could see the rise of the Anthropocene as a concept for thinking about how humans have reshaped um, nature, right, through the functioning of technology as a kind of version of the Girardian apocalypse that I was evoking at the beginning of this discussion. So, if technology... Reemerges as a if technology emerges as a a sort of another of these strange substitutes for the sacred. Um, and according to Teal, another point would be that technology enables economic growth, which enables the creation of a kind of abundance that limits conflict by enabling people to all obtain the same goods, and this is essentially mass consumerism, right? And so we no longer need to come into conflict about various goods because they're all obtainable to us through these kinds of economic transactions. And this is why, um, you know, technology is part of the picture of how this modern market economy can function as a a check on the, the danger of contagious violence. And yet, as I just discussed, there's a way that it, um, again, because it contains violence in both senses of the word, as did sacrifice and scapegoating, um, it it always carries the potential to bring back the very crisis that it um, that it seemed to be fending off, which was also true. Going back to my discussion of violence and the sacred, and the sacrificial crisis of scapegoating itself. So, the final point that I Want to raise in relation to this is one that I've written about extensively, which is that you know we can see Teal as not not exactly an inventor but an early um, promoter and investor in social media. And here too, um, and and I'll direct you to my writings on the subject. We're we're confronted with the same question. So social media, as I've argued extensively, um, brings into play these dynamics of of mob violence, right, of escalation to extremes, and of a kind of uncontrolled mimetic contagion, that these kinds of modern atomized societies in other ways have have brought under control, right, through the economic structures I was discussing before. So this is why when we first started to see these kinds of mob actions on social media, of course, the original um, or, the, or the very first um, comments on them already brought into play this notion of a witch hunt, right? So people could see that this was a revival of the kinds of scapegoating that we historically associate with witch hunting, right? So people immediately and intuitively saw that when they saw what was happening on social media in the early period. Yet, I think we could say that you know, there's a way of understanding social media as a kind of container of violence, right? And this is for the simple reason that social media does not bring about um, so- someone who is mobbed by thousands or even millions of people, um, is not, of course, actually killed, right? Because this is all happening in a virtual realm in which we are operating as digital avatars, and so this means that it's it's a kind of way that we can engage in these dynamics, or at least this would be one way of interpreting it: a way that we can engage in these dynamics in a gamified manner, right? Where instead of um, exercising these kind of violent passions in our regular physical lives in a way that would and does bring about the potential for um, actual um, death and, and, you know, violence. Um, we, are, we are carrying them out in these kind of gamified spaces where we may experience a kind of social death if we are forced to shut down our account or whatever because we're being harassed so much. But nevertheless, um, this prevents the violence from actually occurring on the streets or you know, in, in meat space, as we like to say. So this is one potential way of interpreting it. I think there's a, there's a way of possibly thinking about Teal as, as having understood social media in, in these terms early on, right? Um, because he was very interested in this problem and you can read his essay from 2004, the Straussian moment. He was very interested in this problem, as was Girard, about how do you control this um, reemergence of unconstrained violence? And so he was interested in this problem right around the time he was involved in Facebook early on, right? And so you can see these platforms as a kind of container for this type of violence that that you know contains it in the sense of allowing it to occur but in a in a, a virtualized form. however, I think the darker possibility is that because this virtual space has become so inseparable from our um, our day-to-day lives, right um, there is no easy way to separate out what's happening on these platforms from what's happening in the world and this is why, You know, activities on these platforms can trigger riots in in real life and so on. And perhaps the most um, disturbing examples of this come from societies where there is um, a a greater persistence of this kind of gift economy scenario of um, these dense networks of kinship and mutual indebtedness, right? And so, in these societies, particularly, I've read about this sort of phenomenon in Asia. You have, um, in in rural communities, you have these kinds of rival religious groups, be it Hindus or Mos- Hindus and Muslims or, or other um, religious opponents, right? Basically, um, you know, through these kinds of um, of of rumors, right, of the sort that. Um, you know, would have spread in a way that would lead to a witch, a witch hunt, or a lynching, right? In ancient societies, or in in medieval Christian society against Jews, right? That that now, um, because Facebook or platforms like it enable such rapid, seamless spread of these kinds of rumors, right? What you actually see is um, uh, that. The resurgence of these kinds of practices of these, you know, Girard would argue, as old as humanity practices of, of lynching, right, and of mob violence are actually facilitated through platforms like Facebook, right? And precisely the kinds of rumors that we saw in the Guillaume de Machaut discussion, right, about the Jews are being spread in these societies. And again, I think this, this happens more... Um, you know, in, in a more um, obviously um, reminiscent of of this this type of scenario of, of medieval witch hunting and anti Semitism, in in these societies again, where there is is less of a kind of um, atomization and more of a kind of dense network of of kinship and and indebtedness, which. Um, means that these kinds of dynamics where you know if someone some child was supposedly harmed by some member of the rival religious group, then this um, this kind of contagion can spread across the entire kinship network right And this enables for this kind of lynching and mob violence to occur. And so the point would be simply that Facebook far from containing this sort of violence can simply become a conduit. By which it spreads, and so again we come back to this basic ambivalence, right? Where we have these systems that seem to function as as some sort of check, but that um, also enable the um, the the spread of the crisis, right? In, in moments of crisis, and so I think these are all areas that, if you're interested in in reading writing thinking further about Girard, um, these are all areas that I would regard as relatively underexplored. And my hope in teaching this course is partly that I will inspire others to continue upon some of the lines of of inquiry that that I've tried to introduce and that have been brought up by course participants, and to um, you know, initiate or in a, in a small way um, the, the furthering of the, the, the types of thinking and, and research that, that Girard initiated. So, thank you. And as usual, I look forward to discussing all of this with you. And I hope that some of you might at some point um, feel inspired to again take some of these more underexplored lines of inquiry. Uh, forward, because I think they deserve further reflection from thoughtful people like yourselves. So this is the conclusion of the final lecture. Um, I hope you've found these reasonably enlightening, and if you have any points you would like to discuss further with me, you can obviously contact me individually, as well as introduce them in the course uh, forum and the Um, seminar discussions if you're participating in those. So thanks again.